This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 292. This podcast is brought to you by thenewkneeshop.com. Don't let knee pain slow you down or sideline you altogether. Let the latest running innovation, the new knee, help you get back on track. It's designed specifically to relieve that dreaded runner's knee pain. Get it now at nooneeshop.com. That's N-U-N-E-E shop.com and use the code MTA15 for 15% off. This podcast is also brought to you by metpro.co. They're the nutrition concierge service that we've been using for the past few months and really loving. Let MetPro's experts help you dial in your nutrition for your body composition goals. That's metpro.co forward slash MTA to find out more. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. This is a special Ask the Coach episode where we answer questions sent in by listeners about hill work, tricks to increasing speed, what to eat before a race, fad diets, and more. Plus, we give you a rundown of our 7,700-mile road trip across America, and Angie explains how to keep your habit of running going while you're on vacation. And of course, you can get help and support taking your running to the next level inside the Academy. Learn about membership and what it takes to join when you visit MarathonTrainAcademy.com. All right, so here we are back home. Just recently uh, got back from our road trip. Going to tell you guys all about it later on in this episode. Excited to kind of give you a rundown. Angie, how's it feel to be back? Well, of course, it's great to be back in our home with all the comforts and spaciousness of home, as opposed to a 28-foot camper. But uh, I feel like we really had to hit the ground running, and it seems like there's been a million things to do with getting the kids ready to go back to school. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've been doing paperwork and <laughs> running here and there and, and getting you know back into the swing of things. So yeah, good and, and busy. <laughs> Well, we got a lot to get to in this episode. We're really excited about how it turned out. Uh, First, we want to tell you guys that the MTA Virtual Half is officially open for registration. This is an event we've been doing every year. This is the third year now, and we've had folks from all over the world participate in previous years. I think we had over 19 different countries represented last year and um, like 45 different states. I'll have to go back and check. I'm really excited about how this year is shaping up because we have probably the coolest hat and medal that we've done yet, and you know we've done some pretty cool stuff. So you guys will have to go check it out over at MarathonTrainAcademy.com forward slash half. We've got like a trucker style MTA trail runner hat. Even if you're not a trail runner, you'll still look cool in it no matter (laughs) where you're running at. And the medal this year is trail running theme. Way back in the first year of doing this podcast, we had Angie's sister Autumn on the show to talk about her first marathon because Angie, you helped her train. And one mantra she had when she was running her first marathon, which I think was in Little Rock, Arkansas, right? It's pretty hilly down there. So anyway, she had this mantra, I eat hills like candy. And it kind of stuck, you know, and people would repeat that back to us. And through the years we've had, like, I eat hills like candy put on various things like t-shirts and uh, stickers. So anyway, this is an I eat hills like candy metal. And it's got a little slider where you can actually move the little running person up the hill and down. (laughs) (laughs) Ingenious. So of course, people may be wondering what a virtual race is. A virtual race is a race that you can run or walk in any location. So you can do your favorite running route. You can be on vacation. You can do it on the treadmill, on the track, on trails. 
and you can even do it while running another race. And you have the flexibility and convenience of running at any time of the day and at your own pace. Yep, that's right. It's totally on the honor system. So you sign up and run it wherever you live, and we ship you out the one-of-a-kind medal and hat. How often has a podcaster sent you something in the mail? I think it's a pretty cool opportunity. Plus, it really helps the show. I don't know if we mentioned, but the event takes place in November. Basically, you can sign up now, start training, and then sometime in November, anytime during the month, you can run this, and then we will send you out your hat and medal. That's right. We also create a pop-up Facebook group for registrants to share photos from their runs and even their training. So it's a lot of fun. Um, There's some great group support, and you get to hear from people all over the world. So yeah, check it out at marathontrainingacademy.com forward slash half. And if you're listening to this soon enough, there's still time to jump in at the uh, early bird registration price, marathontrainingacademy.com forward slash half. Well, we always enjoy doing shout outs to people in our community, and this episode is no exception. We'd like to say congratulations to Coach Chris, who recently finished the Lake Placid Ironman. And of course, that's a full Ironman, right? That's right. This note comes from Maria in the Academy. She says, I did my first ever half marathon this morning and listened to the MTA podcast the whole way to keep me focused and motivated. It was a virtual race, but I was just as excited and I finished five minutes faster than I expected. Hey, something to be said about those virtual races, right? Oh, yeah. This note comes from Andrew in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He says, Hey, Angie and Trevor, I started running a year ago to manage my weight after years of poor diet and lifestyle. Life seemed to really get away from me and started to become a source of a lot of depression. The MTA podcast has really given me a friend to help bring me into this world, and I can't tell you how life-saving that has been. I recently finished my first half marathon, the Colfax Half in Denver, with a time of 1 hour, 44 minutes, and 58 seconds. My mind was blown that I could carry that pace after struggling to finish a 5K not even a year ago. I plan on running my first full marathon in September. Thanks for everything, and keep inspiring people to release the Kraken. Well, that is really cool. Thank you, Andrew, for telling us about your first half marathon. Congrats on going the distance. And you finished in a great time, man. 144.58. That's excellent. And I just love the fact of how he talked about the lifestyle changing value of running. Mm -hmm. You know, how it seems like it's been able to flip around um, his mindset, you know, and also his health. This note comes from Sue. She says, I love the podcast. I started running at age 63, and I'm now celebrating my 70th birthday year, all year. I time qualified for Boston in 2018 and just ran the Boston Marathon this year. I hope to meet Angie at Revels Coolia Marathon in January. Of course, that's in Hawaii. She says, I'll still be celebrating turning 70 years old, and it will be my eighth marathon. I like the idea of a birthday year. I think I'm going to do that. (laughs) Think you can put up with that, Angie? If I uh, had a birthday year, I think your your years are sort of like that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's like whatever spontaneously brings you enjoyment, you pretty much gravitate towards that. Yeah, why not? I mean, life is too short. Go out there and do what you love. And congrats, Sue, on taking massive action. We hope we do get to meet you in Hawaii at the Revel Coolia. I'm signing up for the half. Angie signed up for the full. In fact, we'd love to meet as many of you there as possible. Now you got a reason to go to Hawaii in. January. Yeah, what could be wrong with that? (laughs) That's right. Come out, run the marathon or the half, meet up with us. It's going to be epic. And of course, people can find out what races we have on the horizon over on our website under itinerary. That's right. So a lot of great stuff going on. In this episode, we are doing a Ask the Coach Q&A. So we collected a lot of great questions from our community. So a lot of training wisdom shared on this podcast. And we were joined by uh, Coach Kristen Williamson, who is one of the coaches on our team, uh, the newest member of our team. 
This has actually worked out pretty cool because as we were coming back from out west, we drove through Minnesota, and Kristen lives in a place called Wilmer, Minnesota. And we actually stopped right there at her house and were able to sit down and record this Q&A. So she actually joined in and helped us answer these questions, which is a lot of fun to have a guest coach on the podcast. When we do one of these Ask the Coach episodes, Coach Kristen is a registered dietitian and an RRCA certified running coach. She's a 329 marathoner, Boston qualifier. It's been great to have her on our team. We now have 10 coaches helping clients around the world. Kristen has a Master of Science in Dietetics as well as a MBA. She's very accomplished. Yeah. (laughs) So here is our Ask the Coach episode with Coach Angie and Coach Kristen. Go ahead and play that for you right now. Well on my way, well on my way. Hey, we are here in the flesh, in person with Coach Kristen Williamson. Here we are in Wilmer, Minnesota. Never thought I would say that. <laughs> Welcome, Coach Thank Kristen. You. It's great to be on the podcast. What What are you doing here in uh, the middle of Minnesota? It's a beautiful area. Well, you know, I'll be honest. I had no idea where Wilmer was until we moved <laughs> here, um, until I met my husband uh, a few years ago. So we recently moved to the area, uh, kind of in more rural Minnesota, and yeah, it's been great to find some new running paths and get to know the rest of Minnesota. Uh, we lived in the Twin Cities for a while. All right. So we always love to ask, how did you get into this crazy world of marathon running? I uh, have actually been a runner for quite some time. Um, I remember growing up in middle school, um, I actually would go out on runs with my dad. Um, so he was kind of the nice. runner in our family and kind of spurred that um, in me. I was always really active uh, to gymnastics for a while and so really saw running as a good complement to that and a good challenge. So I continued kind of on and off as I was growing up. Um, and then actually when I got into college, uh, my sister ran her first marathon, kind of started the spark in our family of, you know, what if we started racing? Um, and so I did um, my first marathon while I was in college and just have been hooked ever since. That's awesome. So what was your first marathon? It was the Chicago Marathon. Nice. Um, so really big race, uh, great energy, um, just a ton of fun. And I really remember kind of coming down the last straightaway and kind of thinking, I can't believe I just did this. Uh, hmm. I'm about to complete my first marathon. And there's just so much energy there. It's it's such a great race. It is. That's one that you definitely can walk away with and think, I want to do this again. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'd love to get back there someday. <laughs> What did you study in college? Uh, so I studied nutrition. Uh, I knew I really loved food, loved being active. Hey, all. Um, yeah. <laughs> cheers to that. Yes. Yeah. And so um, was really interested in this idea of nutrition and how it works, um, you know, how it affects our body, how it affects performance. Um, and so um, started studying uh, nutrition, graduated with um, a degree in dietetics, and then went on to become a registered dietitian. So that's why we're excited to have you on the team because you're a running coach as well as a dietitian. Mm-hmm. And we do have some great uh, questions that we gathered up from listeners and from academy members. And some of those will be on nutrition. And so we'll jump into that. I guess let's circle back to your running for a second. We know your first marathon was Chicago. And then what other races have you done? What other marathons have you done? Oh, it's going to take me a second. <laughs> you don't have to name them all. Just yeah. maybe some that rise to the top in your mind. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd say probably one of my favorites to this day is I got an opportunity to do the Big Sur Marathon um, oh. out in California a few We haven't ago. had that opportunity yet. It's on our bucket list, though. It's, it's incredible. Um, you know, I actually left my watch 
watch at home for that one just to take in the scenery. And it's it's absolutely gorgeous. So um, we actually went back afterwards and my husband is not a marathoner, uh, but drove the course and said, I will run a marathon for this race. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's one to keep the phone out and not look at your watch. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yes. It was incredible. I actually did uh, Boston as well uh, that same year, so that was see your a- Boston medal over there. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was a it was a great experience. Um, did it the, for the first time in 2016, and just amazing. Had my family there, really great experience. Um, and then actually went back uh, in 2018 uh, for a very rough race, uh, lots of rain, but you know it was still an incredible experience. Yeah, that was last year. That was when the the wind and the rain just pelted everybody the whole time. Yes, yeah, I will definitely say it was one of the hardest marathons I think I ever went through. Um, it's kind of <laughs> one of those races where you just yeah you. Tell yourself you're going to make it to the finish line and do whatever it takes to get there. (laughs) You're so cold that you're like, I just have to keep running to stay warm for one thing. Yes. Yeah. And I remember um, there was a random stranger who actually had gym socks um, and was putting gym socks on people's hands. So I don't know who she was, but she was a saint. (laughs) So it really helped. So what did you have to run to qualify for Boston? Yeah, so my with my age bracket in the year that um, I qualified, um, I had to run a three thirty uh, to qualify three thirty or less, or three thirty five, excuse me, um, for that. But as we all know, uh, there's still some buffer room in there. You know, even if you make your qualifying time, you still have to kind of get below that uh, to be able to actually make it into the race. Angie, you know a thing about that or two, right? <laughs> <laughs> Narrowly qualifying. <laughs> And crossing your fingers and hoping you'll get in. Yeah, yep. yeah. We know a guy that missed it by one second because of the cutoff. Oh, man. It's <laughs> so heartbreaking. It is. But just the fact of qualifying for Boston is amazing, whether you run the race or not. So, yeah. you know, still for those people who qualify and never run it. I mean, there's a surprising number who never even desire to run Boston, even though they've qualified. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so many great races out there, too. It's it's tough to choose. <laughs> it is. So many races, so little vacation time, right? Yes, yes. That's always the issue. <laughs> so what do you do for your day job now? Uh, so I actually um, work for a food bank uh, here in the Twin Cities area. So I actually work um, on partnering with healthcare systems to really start to address maybe some of those food or nutrition access issues for people who are struggling with chronic disease. So um, diabetes, heart disease. The thing that we realize um, is that nutrition Nutrition has a big impact on health. Um, And so for people who aren't able to access those nutrition resources, it becomes really tough um, to be healthy and to live the life that you want without those resources. So how did you decide that you wanted to become a running coach? How did that happen? Yeah, I so I was actually going to grad school to become a dietitian and actually worked at a, a phenomenal local running store for women um, in Oak Park. They, so a running store just for women? Yes, just for wow, women. I don't think I've ever seen one. Like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were... So if I came to the door, they'd be like, no, sir, we don't serve your kind. <laughs> no, they, okay. they actually have some great uh, community runs, actually for men too. So uh, do some running and drink some beer afterwards. So always a nice combination. Mm -hmm. I had the privilege of actually kind of leading the runs. um, And I realized I loved being around runners, working with runners, Mm -hmm. you know, from those who really have those dreams to get faster, have maybe been running for a while. Um, And then those who are maybe just kind of dipping their toe into running, really kind of coming alongside them, coaching them where they're at, um, you know, and helping them kind of achieve the goals that they want to achieve. 
And so as I started to think about where I wanted to go in my career, I thought running coaching was was a great way to go. And I've loved doing it ever since. Runners are really cool people. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Just like Angie, she's pretty cool. See? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're a little bit biased. But... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're really excited to have you on the MTA coaching team and really excited to sit down and talk to you today and great. pick your brain about all sorts of topics. Yeah. I'm excited too. I think it'll be great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We do have some great questions sent in from the community. We'll start with a question about hill training. This is from Rachel. She says, hills, how should I be running the hills? Do I run them at an easy pace, a fast pace? What effort should I be at when I'm doing hill runs specifically? And she also talks about how she lives in Minnesota. It's not terribly hilly. And since we happen to be in Minnesota <laughs> and have a bonafide Minnesotan in our midst... <laughs> Uh, Coach Kristen, we'll let you uh, answer this one. Yeah, I certainly know. You know, there are some parts of Minnesota that are that are pretty flat, you know, and others that do have a good amount of hills. I think the great thing about hill workouts is you can do them a few different ways. You can work with hills that maybe are a little bit shorter and steeper and do some really quick paced running. So if you're sprinting up and then maybe taking the downhill as kind of a recovery or even working on longer grades. So if you find a really nice kind of gradual hill, doing some really um, subtle pace jogging up and then, you know, taking the recovery down or maybe even training for a race. So if your race, upcoming race is kind of hilly, making sure that you're running those hills at a pretty steady pace as well. I think the other thing that I'd say too is that, um, but also think of kind of other places. So maybe you live near a stadium um, in running um, and doing some almost like hill sprints up and down the up, up and down, down the stairs. stairs yeah i can kind of relate to rachel because we used to live in southeast missouri and yeah. it was farmland pancake flat you couldn't mm -hmm. find a hill to save your life yeah. so i remember there was a park and it was just a tiny little hill basically just a bump and i would do my quote-unquote hill repeats on that <laughs> you know like 25 times over and you know that was pretty much my hill workout if I wanted to avoid the treadmill. So I think like you said, Kristen, train specifically for the race that you're doing. So if you do have a hilly marathon that's coming up, like see how much elevation gain you're looking at and see where the placement of the hills are as mm -hmm. well. And so if you can find an area that has maybe hills, series of hills or one big hill, maybe incorporate it at that point in your long run that it might be during the race. So mm -hmm. if Let's say there's hills late in the marathon, maybe uh, you're doing a 20 miler, then from like miles 16 to 20, add in some hills if you can. And it just kind of challenges your legs when they're a little bit tired, <laughs> which they'll obviously be during the marathon when you hit that section of hills. Um, and if a person is starting out, you know, start small. You don't have to tackle the whole hill at a time. I remember when we moved to Pennsylvania, where we currently live, there's like hills in every direction. And I'm like, help, there's too many hills now. And I was, it was really humbling because I could hardly even make it up some of these hills. Yeah. It was, it was really rough. And so I would just set, you know, like I'm going to make it to that next fence post, then walk the rest of the hill. And then maybe the next week I would try to make it further. And so just gradually adding in more incline, it can help you reduce injury. Of course, it's a great strengthener for the legs. Mm -hmm. And I always like to say that hills are speed work in disguise. Yes. So they are worth doing. Even if you're running a pancake flat race like Chicago, I mean, that, yeah. that little overpass at the end of Chicago can feel like a hill. It's like a mountain. <laughs> it really does feel like I, a mountain. I remember that one. So even just adding a few hills in can help with flatter races. But definitely train specifically as much as you can for your marathon. And if that means you do most of your long run outside and then you hit the treadmill for the last few miles just to get in some hills, 
you can make it happen if it's a priority, I think. Yeah, agreed. So what, how do you ladies tell your clients to run the hills? Is the hill just hard enough they can just go at it at easy pace? I think Rachel's wondering, you know, does she need to be charging up the hill or it doesn't count? Can you just like death march up the hill like I do? <laughs> does it really matter? You know, it kind of depends on the workout that you're doing. If you're looking at maybe training on hills for a race, I'd say probably one of the more beneficial things is to start to run those at an even steady pace. Uh, so you kind of work okay. on maintaining your pace. Yeah. Um, but if you're incorporating them into a speed workout, like Angie was talking about, you know, maybe doing some faster sprints up them if they're a shorter hill too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great workout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be a great sense of accomplishment just to make it to the top. And you shouldn't be redlining every hill. So no. if you find your heart rate is like going sky high and you're, you know, you're short of breath, your running form <laughs> is falling apart, that's mm-hmm. probably time to either slow down or maybe add a short walk break in. And of course, when you're going to be running hills, start out by warming up with some easy running, right. maybe preferably on a little bit flatter terrain before you hit the hills so that your muscles are ready to tackle more challenge. And then afterwards, try to cool down by easy or flatter running Mm -hmm. so that you kind of can shake out the challenge of the hill from your legs. And of course, if you're dealing with any injuries, you might want to back off on hills at first just to make sure if you're you know, your knees are really giving you problems. You probably don't want to be charging downhill because that's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. on your knees. So just kind of listen to your body and start gradually. And eventually you'll find that you're able to take on more. So it sounds like you ladies enjoy running hills now, right? It was a process, I think. <laughs> when you start running, you know, I think like Andrew mentioned, it sometimes can feel really daunting, you know, so I think just gradually taking those steps uh, to become a better hill runner can really, really help um, and be very encouraging. Yeah, definitely. I feel like having to run hills pretty much in all my long runs now, <laughs> I feel like it's, it's prepared me better. Uh, my last marathon was super flat, but I feel like doing long runs on hills gave me added strength yes. and endurance to be able to uh, attack that race at a faster pace. And of course, then if you're going to be doing trail races, you're probably going to run into more hills as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think I do enjoy the challenge of hills quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> and just mentally, I think, you know, sometimes you have, I run pancake flat races before. And so sometimes it's like, oh, I wish there was a hill in here <laughs> and a little bit of variation in there. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Here's a great question from Dave. He's wondering about speed work and recovery. He says, what do you consider more beneficial to a marathon runner and why? Number one, short sprints and a short recovery. Or number two, longer sprints and a longer recovery. Both, I think, can have a place uh, for a marathoner. Probably throughout your marathon training, you've got maybe some times in which you're not training for a longer race. Um, And so sometimes it's fun to add in some of those shorter races. So if you're doing a 5K or 10K, um, and that's a great place to add in some of those shorter runs, Uh, really start to work on just building that speed. And then once you kind of move into more of that marathon training, starting to look at more of those longer interval sprints and uh, workouts uh, to start to kind of almost maintain that speed. You know, when you think about a marathon, you're not going out in a full on sprint mm-hmm. or you shouldn't. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, or you shouldn't. Um, and so then being able to kind of maintain that speed throughout, uh, you know, that full 26.2. Yeah, I've got to agree with Coach Kristen here. I think both have their place in a marathon training plan. 
Um, some of the benefits of a shorter intervals, like maybe we're talking mm-hmm. 200 to 400 meters, maybe like a strides workout where you're running hard for a few seconds and then running slower. It helps improve your fuel economy. So it helps your body be able to process more oxygen mm-hmm. while you're running at a faster pace. So it can bump up that VO2 max which, you know, everyone hears about, um, it can help you work on faster leg turnover. Mm-hmm. Sometimes as marathoners, we do, you know, majority of our miles at an easier pace. You can kind of get into that marathoner shuffle where you're barely like, lifting your legs. <laughs> so, that, that was me at my 50K. Yeah. So throwing in some of that shorter speed work can just really help your, your leg turnover, yeah. also help your running form. Also, it's a good way for the shorter stuff to add some speed volume in without really overly taxing your body mm-hmm. by just doing really intense stuff. So especially if you haven't done a lot of speed work, it might be good to start with mm-hmm. some shorter speed workouts, just to kind of teach your body like, okay, this is, this is how you run at a faster pace um, and, and break it in easily because you don't want to go from like zero speed work to be like, I'm going to do two speed workouts a week, you know, yeah. I'm going to hammer it hard. It's all going to be speed. Um, and then I will also say that for longer stuff, like maybe 800 meters up to what we call like the tempo run, like mm-hmm. maybe 20 to 30 minutes of a comfortably hard effort, um, it helps you build stronger, steadier paces, which is great for the marathon mm-hmm. because you're going to need that stronger, steadier stuff. It teaches your body to run more effectively and efficiently when you're tired. <laughs> and um, I really think it helps kind of build that engine, that cardiovascular system. So yeah, I think both have a place. Um, a, good marathon training plan should include mm-hmm. a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And so if you're following a plan um, and you know, you're know you not a super beginner, probably at least once a week, you should be doing some kind of speed work yeah. as long as you're injury free. And that's what's working for your body right now. Yeah. And I will say, you know, if you are just starting out, I think coach Angie mentioned this, but really those stride workouts, you know, so starting to incorporate some of those shorter sprint intervals, it can be actually a really fun way to kind of break up some of the uh, day-to-day training, but it's also a great kind of lead in to some of those other things as well. So this is when you're out and you're doing the training run and then you build in an interval of speed inside your, your easy run. Yeah. Well, you can do it a few different ways. Um, so you can actually, you know, with any kind of speed workout, you always want to do some sort of warm up first, uh, really get your body yeah. ready to do those hard sprints. And so, you know, there are some people who maybe do a jog around a park, um, and then find a stretch of pavement or grass or, you know, whatever they want to run on and do sprints. Um, you know, it's roughly about a hundred meters, you know, is what most people do. And then also do a cool down as part of that. So you're just, again, kind of building in that gradual sprint and speed work. And if you're out on the roads yeah. and you don't necessarily have like a measured off yes. pace, I tend to tell my clients like do 20 seconds hard effort yeah. and then 40 seconds easy. And then you can kind of shift between gears and, you know, maybe do that four to six times. If it's your first time you've done strides, you can look at your watch a little bit, hopefully without tripping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can be out on the road and throw those in. Um, if your legs are kind of feeling stale, even during long runs, a couple times, sometimes I'll throw in a few strides. Sometimes I'm having trouble keeping at pace and I just feel like, oh, my legs are heavy. Throwing in a few of those strides, it kind of recruits those fast twitch muscle fibers and it can kind of give your legs a new lease on life sometimes not always (laughs) yeah 
And then, you know, I think that's one of the, actually the great things about some of that speed work is it can be as informal as I'm going to sprint to that next intersection mm-hmm. or that next light post. You know, there's sometimes where that's just the speed work that I, I'm feeling that week, but there are other times where it's a little bit more structured, but there's variability and there's choice. Okay. So here's a question from Amanda. She says, <clears throat> are there tricks to increasing marathon speed? So we were talking about speed work a second ago, but of course there's more that needs to be done in one's training to increase speed other than just speed work, right? That's right. Yeah, I would say first you want to focus on consistency. So if you're looking to get faster in the marathon specifically, try to maintain your running base between races. You know, I know a lot of people who will train hard for a marathon and then they kind of just don't do a lot of running and then they want to get back and train for a marathon. But if you don't have that running base in place, you probably don't want to be throwing in a lot of speed work. So try to maintain that running base in between your races, even if you're not training hard at the moment. Just keep that steady so that you kind of have that endurance base, which is is foundational for marathoners. And then you can add the speed work in. And I would also say keep your easy days easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I find a lot of people tend to run at the same pace every single run. And so then they're really not helping any of the systems, their body, they're not allowing themselves to recover and they're really not giving themselves um, the ability to run faster either. So that would be kind of like the prelude to speed work. Maybe (laughs) I think you read my mind on that one. (laughs) That seems to be, you know, something that I really try to encourage is making sure that you're keeping, you truly are keeping that easy and you're running at the right pace too. I know sometimes we like to tend to push all of our days to run as hard and as fast as we can, uh, but giving your body enough time to recover so you can really hit those hard workouts hard um, and really do them to the best of your ability. Yeah, I would also definitely definitely say that add speed work gradually. Mm -hmm. We were talking about earlier, you know, maybe start with some shorter strides, some shorter intervals before you get into the longer speed workouts, because it takes a while for your body, your, your joints, your tendons, your ligaments, your muscles to get tuned up to this kind of stuff. And if you try to do too much too soon, you might injure yourself. Mm-hmm. So jump into it gradually. Use a training plan that includes speed work, regular speed work. And, you know, that should help you gradually build and also give you paces to stay at as well. And then I would say some non-necessarily running work that you can do is dial in your nutrition to mm-hmm. support your speed goals because it really helps if you're feeding yourself more high quality foods, it's going to run better in my opinion. (laughs) And then adding in regular lower body strength work as well, kind of strengthening those muscle groups so that they can handle more of a load, maybe some of the explosive high intensity stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, I found that's been a big benefit for me in getting faster. Same for me as well. You know, I think the times that I started adding strength training to some of those regular speed work intervals, you really start to see kind of your muscles, I think, start to get used to some of that um, and really work more efficiently as well. And strength training also helps to prevent injury. So if you're Mm -hmm. doing more of that impactful running, you know, doing more speed work, um, adding that strength training can really help to kind of get your muscles and all of your ligaments and joints to where they need to be, especially when you're putting more stress on them. I remember trying to race a 5k and right before before I left the house, I grabbed a handful of peanuts. (laughs) I felt those peanuts, man. Every single peanut was lodged in there. I know. It's like, that is the wrong thing to eat right before you go run. Yeah, I think, you know, most people have maybe that mistake that they've made. I know I've had a few where it's just like, no, that that wasn't right. (laughs) Yeah, I think Angie's got a great story about her first marathon and Sunday, Sunday dinner. 
Oh, well, I was training for my first marathon. Right. I think I had a 16 miler and I wasn't able to get it done in the morning. So I had to wait till the afternoon. Well, then we had like this big lunch. I think it was like fried chicken, mashed potatoes, you know, the whole works. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I only left like an hour between eating oh, and going out for my run. Yeah. And yeah, that, that all came back up. It was not pleasant the second oh, time man. around. And I never ate that close, you know, to running again. Well, especially something so indigestible. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty heavy on your stomach, I'm sure. (laughs) All right, so while we're on the subject of food, we got some fueling and nutrition questions. This first one is from Carolyn in the Academy, and she asks, should you make any specific changes to your diet in the week leading up to a race? I don't want to deprive myself of well-balanced calories and carbs to do well, but also don't want to go in feeling bloated or risk GI distress. So great question. What do you eat or uh, what changes should you make in the week leading up to your race? Yeah, that can be so frustrating. I think sometimes for people who train so hard for a race only to get to race day and Hmm. have that GI distress. I know that can really wreck your marathon. Um, And so one of the best things I think you can do is we talk about training and we talk about, you know, following your running plan um, and trying different things out, whether it's getting new shoes or trying new gear. Same thing applies to nutrition, you know, that week before the race, um, that should be really your time to really kind of execute on your plan. If you've got a solid breakfast, making sure that you um, know kind of what you're eating and you've tested that out too. Um, We see some of that GI distress coming from maybe people eating too soon to the race, Mm -hmm. Um, making sure that you you give yourself enough time to really let your body kind of digest that so you're not really feeling the stress of, of that. Do you typically eat, Kristen, before a marathon, like a morning marathon, or do you just do it on empty stomach, you know, other than fuel products that you might take? Yeah, I typically do eat before a marathon, um, especially if it's going to be, you know, a hard marathon. If I'm going for a PR, I want to make sure that my body's got enough of those carbohydrates to really be able to perform at its best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are some tried and true breakfasts that I have that I'm testing out. Um, I'm actually preparing for a marathon overseas right now. So trying wow. to figure out what's what's best there and that I can take with me uh, to really be prepared for that day. Okay, now you got to well. tell us which one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I am... I'm running the Berlin Marathon in oh, September. Right. So, Tell me about that. Yeah, very exciting. excited for that. Yeah, and so actually uh, this weekend I said, okay, I really got to figure out kind of what I'm eating beforehand so I can start to start to test that out. Then how many hours before your race do you ha- try to have that meal done? Yeah, for me, um, you know, it kind of depends on the person and what they're eating and how they tolerate it. But for me, I find that probably about an hour before um, is what works best. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of what my gut tolerates, you know, and um, I found that to be really effective too. Well, also, you know, not waiting too long in between the time that I eat and the time that I run. I think one key, like you talked about, is not doing anything new, especially three days before before the race. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the old information about carb mm-hmm. loading, like you have yeah. to stuff yourself with extra carbs and food and no. leading up to the race is, is only going to leave you probably feeling bloated yes. and maybe have that GI distress. So mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, try to eat those tried and tested uh, meals yeah. <laughs> and what worked for you before your long runs, your successful long runs, especially yeah. uh, try to do that for your race. And everyone's digestive system works differently, like you said. So it's really important just to get your bowels moving on before yeah. <laughs> you get out there to race. Yes. And so some people may need, you know, two to three hours yeah. for their meal to digest and to pass things through. Some people, you know, maybe can do an hour. 
So you'll figure that out in your long runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, that's what the porta pots are there for. <laughs> yeah. Bring your own toilet paper at Berlin, just telling you. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> that's great to know. <laughs> pro, pro tip. Yes. Oh, man. So, you yeah. know, I mean, that's just the fact of being a runner. You know, you don't really aren't really feeling comfortable going into the race until right. you've been able to clear your bowels and then hopefully things will settle down and they won't continue to bother you during the race. But yeah. Yeah. So my uh, tried and true method is Mexican food the night before <laughs> barbecue after the race. You know, Angie always talks yeah. about listening to your body. That's what my body tells me to do. <laughs> it tells you you're Mexican German food before the race. Oh. That's a little bit harder to find. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> Well, in Berlin, I yeah, mean, it's there. Yeah. You, you might be able to find it there. Yeah, I don't know. That's probably after the race. <laughs> you have to get some curry worst. That's what they're known for. I know. I, I was looking at that, so I'm actually really excited to try that. <laughs> so this question is from Bridget. She says, what do I need to know about calories versus carbohydrates versus proteins? I know what they are because my two-year-old is type 1 diabetic, but I'm not sure what is most important for long runs and when to eat them. You know, when we talk about food, um, sometimes you hear you hear calories a lot or you hear macros or macronutrients, but actually having a good understanding of what those things are. Um, you know, when we talk about calories, that's really kind of a unit of energy, how your body breaks down the food that you eat and how it's able to turn that into energy. Um, and really, when we look at calories, they're kind of subdivided into different what we call like macronutrients. Sometimes you'll hear them called macros. Um, I feel like that term's been used more frequently in kind of pop culture. Um, mm-hmm. But that really refers to um, carbohydrates, protein, um, and fat. And each of those um, is really unique. It really has a different kind of role um, when you're talking about the use uh, that your body uses it for. It's really made up of different things to help different processes. And so when we talk about carbohydrates, um, think about that as really like a quick energy for your body to use. Um, You know, that's something that we find really helpful if you're going out for a really high intensity uh, run. Um, So, you know, if you're doing speed work or maybe a higher intensity long run, those are really ways to be able to fuel um, your muscles and really kind of give your body quick energy to be able to do that. When we talk about protein, really this is something that that your body uses to really rebuild muscle. Um, So, you know, when you think about um, coming back from a long run, you really just put a lot of toll on your body. Um, And so making sure that you include uh, protein in that that post-run meal um, as well too. Um, And then fat. Fat actually plays a really important role. Um, I know for a long time we've had this really kind of fear of fat to say, oh, no, don't eat fat. Um, I really think we're kind of out of the dark on that one, I hope. Yeah. Um, and so really incorporating some of those unsaturated fats um, into your diet, um, as these are things that help to really actually help your body kind of absorb some of those uh, vitamins and minerals that are also really important for runners, too. You think that one of those is more important for long runs or a combination? Yeah, I'd say each of them have their role. Um, you know, when you're talking about really what to do before a long run, that's really where we want to get those carbohydrates and again, that energy for your muscles mm-hmm. um, and keep kind of protein and fat to a minimum. Um, sometimes that's when we hear people may have some GI distresses when they're adding in a lot of, a lot of that. Like a handful of peanuts. Yeah, like a handful <laughs> of peanuts <laughs> or something greasy that's just going to sit in your gut. 
and yeah. not do good things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, protein is really something that, you know, we want to focus on after your run. So really getting in some quality protein sources um, and then coupling that with carbohydrate because carbohydrates um, kind of job isn't done when you stop running. Um, mm-hmm. Your body's still working on repairing your muscles. And so really ha- coupling protein and carbohydrates and also adding in a little bit of fat with that too can really help that recovery. Is there a window after, let's say, a long run that you recommend people get in some kind of recovery food? Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's actually been something I think we're still kind of researching, protein in specifically. Um, so there's a lot of emerging research to say, okay, what what is that window? You know, what should we do? Um, I usually recommend about 30 minutes to an hour to get at least a snack in. Um, but really then making sure that somebody is able to sit down for kind of a more well-rounded meal afterwards, soon after that. And this question is from Drew. Interesting question. He says, debunking benefits of fad diets, plus how to adjust lifestyle and diet for optimal performance. So I think Drew would like to hear you ladies debunk the fad diets. <laughs> and then he also has a separate question, how to adjust your lifestyle and diet for optimal performance. Yeah, I'd say, you know, on fad diets, I kind of feel like there's a new one cropping up every week. (laughs) Um, You know, different things that are promising quick fixes or really rapid weight loss, um, which can be really dangerous. And so a few things to kind of ask yourself, I think, to understand if it's a fad diet is, are they promising you a quick fix? Making sure also that they aren't really totally eliminating any food groups Uh, with that too. I think, you know, as we talked about, before really everything kind of has their place um, and really helping to help you run your best. And as far as lifestyle changes, I think there are three things that I usually tell runners. One thing is make it a priority. You spend all of that time really planning out running and going after those really hard workouts. So make sure that you plan your nutrition and do it kind of with the same detail. The second thing is to plan ahead. Sometimes as you're running or you maybe drive to the gym to run or run with a group, make sure that, you know, after you get done with your run, sometimes you are just ravenous. (laughs) So plan ahead, uh, pack a small snack, uh, pack something that you can really start to get some of that fuel in. So when you get home, you don't eat everything in sight. And And, and think, well, I just went on a run so I can... I can do this now, right? Start to justify it. Yeah. <laughs> bag of Cheetos, whole quart of ice yeah. cream, whatever. Yeah. I'll just, it'll just all level out back to zero and yeah. no damage done. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I definitely have had those times too. You kind of learn from experience and start to plan that out. The last tip I think I would give when you're making those lifestyle changes is start small. Don't try to tackle everything at once. You know, maybe focus on one thing for the next three weeks until you kind of master that. And then maybe think about adding in some other kind of maybe nutritional tweaks after that. Yeah, that's excellent. I really like what you said about if it promises quick results, if it it seems too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. And also something that it's not sustainable for the long term is also probably not going to give you the results. Maybe you'll lose a few pounds in the short term, but then it could rebound because it's just not healthy or sustainable. So you really have to, to weigh that. And also another thing is that what works for maybe your running partner or your, you know, your spouse or a friend may not necessarily work for you because there's a whole different variety of factors, including your age, your gender, um, you know, where you're at in your hormonal cycle. There is just a lot of your activity level. 
all those kind of things factor in. And I know personally what worked for me five years ago may not work for me now. Yeah. You have to be open and, and sensitive to what your body is telling you and what it needs and not be so stuck in one framework that you're afraid to change. Mm-hmm. I really recommend often that people, maybe they feel stuck and they don't know exactly what where they should go with their nutrition mm-hmm. to work with a dietitian mm-hmm. to really dial it in. Because if you're wanting to train for performance and also just feel good in your daily life, it really can be helpful to get that education and get someone who knows what they're doing to help you along the way yeah. instead of just trying to guess and things yeah. not working. <laughs> well, and it is so individual too. And I think another thing, um, you know, we don't always think of, but different taste preferences, you know, mm-hmm. you should enjoy what you eat, um, yes. you know, and so making sure that you can do that within your parameters too. If you're training for a marathon, making sure your body's getting the fuel that you need and also that you're enjoying what you eat too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't punish ourselves. You know, well, if I find a lot of people, they tend to punish themselves with exercise for what they eat. And it can be kind of a destructive cycle being really critical about your body, especially in the running community, because maybe you never feel like you're, you measure up to other runners. There's a big comparison trap that we can fall into. And so realizing that it's just all about focusing on yourself and how you can optimize your own nutrition and not worry about what other people are doing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that's, it's huge. I think you hit it right on the head. Definitely a big trap that we tend to fall into is comparing ourselves to where other people are at. Um, and specifically with nutrition too. Definitely. Good stuff. All right. Well, so fun to be able to answer questions sent in from the community and like I said we had more questions than we had time to get to and this is only half of the recording that we made there at Kristen's house so we're going to save the rest of it for part two in the next episode and if you want to get more info about what we offer through MTA coaching services you can check that out on our coaching page over on our website marathontrainingacademy.com it's great to have Kristen on the team and just the experience and knowledge that she brings so now we thought we would give you guys a rundown of our 7,700-mile trip out west and maybe uh, share some of the more memorable experiences and mishaps that we had. Before we do that, though, we'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, New Knee. We know the running season is in full stride and people are beginning to log some serious miles, but don't let runner's knee pain keep you from completing your runs. You can take action against it with New Knee. It's a running innovation designed to provide immediate relief to runner's knee symptoms. That's right. It's the direct result of Ironman triathlete Mike Emerling's own five-year struggle with runner's knee. He was unable to get relief from other remedies, so he came up with his own solution. New Knee's unique design relieves the pressure that each stride places on your kneecap, and the research reveals if you relieve the pressure, you'll relieve the pain. Today, runners from coast to coast are getting immediate relief with New Knee, including Hall of Fame running back Thurman Thomas. He uses New Knee to stay fit and active. Nooney has been five-star rated by running injury specialist Ben Chateau, who we've had on the podcast. So don't let knee pain slow you down. To stop runner's knee in its tracks, go to nooneeshop.com. That's N-U-N-E-E shop.com. And use the code MTA15 for 15% off. And we'd also like to thank MetPro for sponsoring this episode. They're nutrition concierge consulting service that helps you really dial in your metabolic rate. MetPro stands for metabolic profiling. They provide you with a nutrition coach that works with you one-on-one to help up adjust or down adjust your, your meals in order to get your metabolism up and running efficiently again. Of course, you guys have heard us talk about them on the podcast. It's been working great. Angie, you've been killing it on MetPro. 
Yeah, it's been really wonderful to work with our nutrition coach, Natalie, for the past nine months. And she's helped me dial in my nutrition so that I'm able to lose fat and also have all the energy I need for running marathons and all my other workouts. I've been able to lose 30 pounds and just super excited to feel like myself again, really. Yeah, it really has been a blessing. Check them out at metpro.co forward slash MTA. And that's a .co, not a .com. metpro.co forward slash MTA. All right, so our summer travels, where do I begin? We were 48 days out there on the road, traveling with our kids and our camper. We went through 15 states. We visited five national parks slash monuments slash historical sites. Total mileage driven, 7,719. Not quite as many as last year when we drove to Alaska, remember that? (laughs) That's right, I think that was over 10,000. Three marathons accomplished, actually two of those were ultras. And I counted up some receipts, and we spent approximately $1,700 on gas. Wow. I'm not surprised. It felt like we were gassing up all the time. So let me paint a picture for you guys. We pulled this uh, 28-foot travel trailer behind our Suburban, and we did upgrade our Suburban because last year, coming back from Alaska, it like almost completely left us stranded. (laughs) (laughs) So now we have a 2014 Chevy Suburban, perfect for hauling kids and hauling a travel trailer. Now the camper is pretty nice inside... It's got a queen bed, and we actually always move our mattress from home out into it because, you know, the camper mattresses are pretty cheap, and Angie is a real stickler about her sleep. I'm a sleep zealot. Uh, The camper has a couch that folds down to a bed, good enough for a short person. So our youngest son sleeps there. And it has a bunk bed in the back corner where our two other boys sleep. So three boys, five in our family total. And, of course, it has a small bathroom with a shower. Of course, with the bathroom, you can touch all four walls standing in one place. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. A kitchen that slides out, a dinette table, a TV, and we just load it full of stuff. You know, Angie's running shoes take up a lot of room. (laughs) I call it her mobile running shoe trailer. I think actually you brought more shoes in this trip than I did. I don't know. I was about like that. tripping over them all the time. <laughs> ah, the great American road trip. It recalls a simpler time in American life when families would leave the cares of suburbia behind and get a king size view of the ever changing landscape of America through the windows of the family automobile. But what will this family see as they drive across the vast American highway system? Perhaps Lake Michigan will come into view, or the mighty Rocky Mountains. Or they might encounter other less inspiring attractions, like the world's largest buffalo statue, or a mural made entirely of corn. And who can forget the birthplace cottage of President Herbert Hoover? Happy sounds can be heard from the backseat of the car when the children occasionally glance up from their tiny screens and take in the beauty of the natural world. Here is one of the young lads now. Gee, golly, Mom and Dad. I just saw a cow taking a dump. Art road trips swell. As they drive along, the day grows late and the family still hasn't stopped for supper. Father better find a place to stop soon, because Mother's attitude is sinking fast. Maybe a hamburger stand will be just around the next bend. Better luck next time. Looks like the family will be eating leftovers from their tiny camper refrigerator again. When you're pulling a camper across the U.S., always be sure to allow plenty of time for your morning exercises. 
We recommend warming up with a few dozen jumping jacks. Then jog around the campground in a vigorous manner. Be sure to wave to all the other campers, because everyone loves an enthusiastic morning person. Only 2,000 miles more to go until they get to Grandma and Grandpa's house. Looks like it will be another glorious day on the Great American Road Trip. So the first thing that we did was uh, go up to Michigan to Lake Charlevoix, where Angie ran the Charlevoix Marathon. Beautiful place. You can hear about it on episode 288. We couldn't find a campground in Charlevoix, so we actually found one 20 miles outside of town in a place called East Jordan, which happened to be right on the lake. It was really nice. And after the marathon, we rented a pontoon boat and pulled the kids in a tube behind the boat. They'd never done that before. Angie, this is your favorite part of the story to tell, what happened to us on Lake Charlevoix. My favorite part? Oh, well, it's just because I, it was a new experience. We got boarded by the Coast Guard. Yep. They were doing routine stops just to make sure you know, the boat was licensed and we had all the safety gear on it. So it was very interesting to kind of watch that process. Like five Coast Guard guys come out in a small boat and get right up beside yours and then ask for all your documentation and paperwork and safety equipment and check your license. And yeah, so now we can say that's happened. (laughs) (laughs) So after Michigan, we kept uh, driving west. Of course, our ultimate destination was Washington State on the coast. Sometimes we just had days of driving with not a lot of exciting stuff. I mean, One day, I think the most exciting thing was we saw the Corn Palace in Mitchell, South Dakota. Does that sound exciting? (laughs) (laughs) It's actually my second time there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you have nothing better to do, you can see a giant mural made of corn. It is pretty impressive. So the next thing we did was we went to the Black Hills of South Dakota. This whole area has so much to do. The main reason for us going there was the Black Hills 50K, which you can hear about on episode 290. But one thing that we enjoyed doing down there was was going to Wind Cave National Park. Few people, it seems, have heard of this place. It was actually the seventh national park to be made a national park. And it's one of the longest caves in the world. There's 149 miles of passageways. Back in 1889, there was a 16-year-old boy named Alvin McDonald who just started exploring this cave every day and making notes using only a candlelight. Can you imagine that as a 16-year-old? I cannot. I mean, I'm, I kind of have mild claustrophobia, so yeah, that would not be how I was spending my spare time. <laughs> yeah, even to this day, they are still discovering parts of the cave that they think no one has ever seen, and then they'll find little traces, like pieces of string that he left there to find his way back out, or in one room they found his initials carved uh, into the ceiling. Pretty interesting story, and just makes me think of just the exploring spirit, and I know I aspire to have that. Not exploring caves, necessarily, (laughs) but just exploring the natural world. I love it. What do we do next? We headed into Wyoming, and we stopped at Devil's Tower Monument, something that we had passed going, you know, on the interstate before and never taken the time to drive over to visit. Yeah, this is an enchanting place. You guys have got to see it. If you're ever driving through Wyoming, it's this massive tower, this monolith, interesting geological kind of volcanic mass that rises from the ground is right there on the plains. And it's 5,112 feet tall. And people have been climbing this tower uh, since 1893. And the early ranchers in that area back in those days, they would climb it using wooden pegs and ladders. And you can still see remnants of that old route that they used. It's pretty neat. That sounds really sketchy. (laughs) (laughs) 
So it's actually a national monument here in the States. We have national parks, national historical sites, and national monuments. And I was reading that a national monument is smaller and only focuses on one thing, like boom, the tower whereas a national park is much larger and has many different features and ecosystems usually. But they're all part of the park system here in the U.S. So after we left Devil's Tower, we went into the great state of Montana and went on some good hikes, right? Probably the toughest hike we did was the hike to the Ice Caves, uh, which is near Lewistown, Montana. I don't know if the kids are going to remember that hike the same that we will. (laughs) Yes, they are reluctant passengers on our hiking excursions, but... You know, it's building character and resilience, so that's our main goal. (laughs) Plus, we love to hike, so they get to be along for the ride, or for the hike, we should say. So yeah, our kids are good kids, but they do tend to complain sometimes, like all kids do, sitting in the car too long or being made to go on long death hikes. I mean... No one died. I don't see why we call it a death hike. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I kind of had this running joke. Whenever they would uh, be kind of grumpy, I would just make up compliments on their behalf. Since they weren't doing it, I would just do it for them. But I would do it in like the voice of a 1950s kid. (laughs) (laughs) Like from a sitcom, like Leave it to Beaver or something like that. (laughs) Exactly. I'd say, gee, Dad, it sure is swell to be on this camping trip. We've learned all kinds of interesting facts. (laughs) I would kind of joke too, like, well, we were going to spend the day watching TV all day, but Riley really wanted to go on a hike. And we're like, Riley, no, we just want to relax today. (laughs) And and Riley was like, no, I really want to challenge myself. I want to hike up mountains and really sweat and see the views. You know, of course, he's kind of grinning by then because it's the total opposite of what he says. (laughs) We're having too much fun at this. Going through Bozeman, Montana, one place we always love to stay at is Bozeman Hot Springs Campground because you can stay there and then you get passes to the uh, hot springs, which have indoor and outdoor pools that are naturally fed by, you know, underground springs. And of course, in Montana, we went through Butte and I did the Divide 50K, which you can also hear about on episode 290. Then leaving out from Butte, we drove through Deer Lodge and stopped at the Montana State Prison Museum, which also has a car museum. And I found it really interesting, but you had a different experience. <laughs> There's actually a variety of museums in that town. It's, it's really set up pretty neat. Um, and the prison was was awesome. I think the kids really enjoyed going through there. However, there is a lot of dampness that had gotten in there. And it was just very moldy, and I'm very sensitive to certain types of mold. And when we got in there, I could just feel myself starting to wilt. By the time we were done with the tour, I was sick and and fought um, sickness for the next two to three weeks. So that was very frustrating. Two to three weeks? Yes. Just from one mold hit? Yeah. It's not fair, Angie. I know. So heading west from Montana, we drove across the panhandle of Idaho, then came into Washington State, and we visited a little town called Leavenworth, Washington, which is a place I think may have been made just for me. (laughs) Having been there now, I have to agree. (laughs) It is a Bavarian-style village in the Cascade Mountains, so if you can never get to Germany, just go to Leavenworth, Washington, and maybe it's the next best thing. I don't know. It kind of sounds like it might be just a tourist trap, and maybe it kind of is. You can't take it too seriously, but it was actually a thriving little town, and we got really good food there, and really the city planning or you know the city ordinances pretty much keep all of the buildings looking in downtown area on Main Street 
keep all the buildings looking Bavarian style. So, you know, it doesn't work if like only one or two do it. Right. You got to have them all do it. Yeah, they really went all out. So in 1962, this town was struggling and the University of Washington took it on as a project and they came up with this idea to transform it into a Bavarian village. Because the mountains around there look like the Alps. Perhaps, yeah. So they, they completely renovated the downtown and everything is Bavarian themed. Even McDonald's gets in on the act and I think I could have stayed there for a couple more days. Yeah, I was, I was having a good time. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was pretty neat. And you bought yourself a German hat. I don't know what it's called exactly as a souvenir. So Angie can make fun of me every time I put it on. <laughs> so then we uh, drove through the mountains, came to the coast, took a ferry across the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, where my parents live. And we were actually there staying with them for about 13 days. Just really enjoyed the cool weather. Meanwhile, back here in Pennsylvania, in our little town, they're experiencing like 100 degree days. We're out there, you know, it's a, it's the high 60s, low 70s. We thought we were pretty smart for escaping the heat. What do you think, Angie? Oh, yeah, that was some of my best running was out there. No humidity, no heat. It was it was idyllic. Plus, we got to go to Olympic National Park. Such a dramatic place. Many different ecosystems from high mountain ridges and glaciers all the way to rainforests and, you know, rocky beaches. Just hard to describe, but we actually got away for a day, just Angie and I, and were able to do some hiking out there. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed that hike. Just so beautiful and refreshing to be up there in the mountains. When we got back into Pennsylvania, our home state, we were going along Interstate 70, and by this time, we're kind of road-weary. We're in the final stretch, only about 90 miles from home, and just out of nowhere, we heard this loud slamming sound, and it almost felt like someone had rear-ended us. So I started slowing down and found a place to pull over on the side of the road. Of course, there's not much of a shoulder there uh, on the interstate. Semi-trucks are whizzing by, like shuttering the whole vehicle. So I go back to see what went wrong this time, and the camper, which by the way weighs over 5,000 pounds, had become uncoupled from our car. And that slamming sound I heard was when the camper unattached, it was caught by the safety chains. Thankfully, those safety chains were there, and they worked exactly like they're supposed to work. But that's all that was keeping it from rolling away. So apparently the hitch pin had worked its way out. There's this little clip that holds in this hitch pin and somehow the clip had gone missing. I don't know how. And over the miles, that pin probably just kind of worked its way out, which caused the camper to completely get unattached from the car. So now I've got a situation where I've got to figure out how to attach the uh, camper back to the car and I don't have any pin to put through the hitch, you know, the piece that holds it all together. So then you had to MacGyver it, which I told that to the kids, and they're like, who's MacGyver? <laughs> which <laughs> obviously kind of dates myself. <laughs> I know, exactly. So in lieu of a hitch pin, I stuck two screwdrivers through the hole, and then I used plastic zip ties and zip tied the screwdrivers tight in place so they wouldn't come out. And that's how we made it to the next exit until we can find a parts store and buy a new hitch pin. But yeah, it was it was kind of sketchy. <laughs> Thankfully, amazingly, no damage was done to the camper or to the car. But man, what a day. So let's a little look at our travels. In just a moment, Angie's going to explain how to stay active and keep your running going during your travels and during vacation. First, we'd like to say a big word of thanks to our shoe sponsor, On. 
They're a Swiss company born in the Alps with one goal, to revolutionize the sensation of running. And the whole company is based around the idea of zero-gravity running. What makes On different is its emphasis on clean, minimalistic design, as well as its sole technology, which gives you the sensation of running on clouds. And we actually wore these shoes hiking and got some for our kids, wore them at our marathons. Yeah, that's right. I've been wearing them for several months now and now have four different On models. I would love all of them. They've pretty much taken over my running shoe collection. Um, so they're very comfortable for both the marathon, the road marathon, and for my 50K. So these shoes are so comfortable, you won't want to take them off. They have a full range of shoes and apparel to power your full day on and off the trail. So they make more than just running shoes as well well. And you can try a pair of ONS for yourself for 30 days and put them to the test. That means actually running in them before you decide to keep. And if you're not convinced that you like them, send them back for a full refund. Just go to on-running.com forward slash MTA, on-running.com forward slash MTA. Thanks also to Tiger Balm Active. An important part of optimizing your running performance is your pre-workout routine. So check out Tiger Balm Active Muscle Rub. It's a great way to loosen up your muscles before you work out. Um, you can feel this cooling, warming sensation that immediately goes to work on your muscles. And they also have some great products for after your workout to help prevent soreness. They have the Tiger Balm Active Muscle Gel and also the Muscle Spray for hard-to-reach places. It's non-greasy and gives you that warming sensation that gets your sore muscles ready to go or ready to cool down so that you don't have that residual soreness. I often will apply it pretty much everything from the waist down if I'm doing a tough workout or a long run. And it works great. So get your muscles ready for peak performance. Go to your local CVS or Rite Aid store today, and you can pick up the Tiger Balm Active Muscle Rub and the Tiger Balm Active Muscle Gel and Muscle Spray as well. That's Tiger Balm Active, available at your local CVS or Rite Aid. Well, runners have found that one great way to enjoy vacation and traveling even more is to explore the area on your own two feet. Just going out for a run and just really seizing the day, keeping your running going while traveling. Angie, what are some tips we can share? Yeah, I really feel like I enjoy traveling and vacations more when I'm staying active and staying fit. Of course, you do need to be more deliberate about your planning and preparation in order to do this, but I wanted to share a few ways that people can keep up with their running routine um, when they're traveling, and even if it's a long extended trip like we did, the first thing that we enjoy doing is to schedule races to run on vacation. You can look for races near your traveling destination, or of course you can choose to run a specific race and travel to the destination for that race. A runcation. That's right. Um, and so the, if you're going to be traveling somewhere and you're kind of looking for a race in the area, one great site is active.com. You can enter like the zip code or the city and state, and it will pull up a list of races in that vicinity, everything from one mile runs uh, to longer distances. So that can be a great option. Uh, two great sites for finding marathons include runninginthusa.com and marathonguide.com. And for ultras, a great site to go to is called ultrasignup.com. Yeah, I also want to mention that marathonguide.com has international races. So you can find marathons in Canada and Europe and just everywhere around the world. So, you know, if you're kind of wanting to include a race into your travels or traveling specifically for the race, these can be great places to go to figure out what you want to do. The second thing I'd encourage is to pack needed gear. This means planning for enough running clothes to last between available laundering sessions 
or planning to air out or rinse off items to wear again. So, you know, it just depends on the scope of your trip, um, how much you can pack and things like that. A lot of gear is meant to dry quickly, so you can use it for a run, rinse it out, um, and hang it again and have it ready to go the next day. Since we had the camper, I was able to pack more stuff than a lot of people can when they're flying. But some important gear that you might need includes chafing ointment, your shoes, a watch and charger, uh, pepper spray or mace if you carry that, uh, fueling options, and hydration pack. Hydration packs can be great, especially if you're going to include hikes or longer runs into your traveling plans. And if you forget anything, it might be a good opportunity to check out a local running store and talk to the staff about good places in the area to run. And one of my favorite things to do, of course, is look for places to run wherever you stay. So this may be a gravel road that goes out into the country. It may mean doing loops around a small town, maybe in a city where you're staying, a local track, maybe a treadmill in a hotel gym. I mean, there's lots of options. Um, And some, some great places to find popular running routes include Map My Run, and it shows the most popular running routes in the area. Runkeeper.com also shows the same thing. Um, And then there's a site called greatruns.com. It's advertised for travelers who run and for runners who travel. And so you can locate um, good running routes uh, to do when you're traveling in the U.S. and internationally. Trail Link shows popular trails in your area. So you go to traillink.com. We'll have all these links over on the blog post with the show notes. uh, So you can go over there if you're interested. Um, And then there's another service called City Running Tours. And these can be group runs that you sign up for, or you can pay more and do a concierge run where the pace, the distance, the time of day is controlled by you. And we've actually heard from an Academy member who has done this when she's traveled to different cities. And, you know, she just really had great things to say about about the running guide that she was paired up with. And, of course, the most important thing is to make it a priority, because if you don't make it a priority, it's probably just not going to happen organically. So schedule your run at a time of the day that you won't skip it. So that probably means in the morning if you're a morning person. But also don't despair if you miss your morning run. A run in the afternoon or evening after a long day of traveling can really feel good. Kind of shake out some of the cobwebs. You know, you feel like you've been sitting too long. I know that if I go a couple days without running and and I'm traveling, it just, I don't feel like myself. So any time of the day that you can get out there is, is great. Of course, I'm a morning runner primarily. So I like to set out all my gear the night before because when you're in a space, a small space with other people, you know, you kind of want to minimize the amount of fumbling around in the morning <laughs> as so as not to wake up other people who are not planning on getting up early and running. So just kind of make your, your stack of your running gear and you can slip it on in the morning and head out the door and start the day right. I think my final tip is to get over the fear of what other people think. As much as I hate to admit it, there's often an element of self-consciousness that I have when I head out to run in a new area. It just it feels different. It feels unfamiliar. You don't really know what's going to be around the next corner. But I'm always thankful when I push myself outside my comfort zone and do the run anyway. And sometimes this is meant doing laps around a campground or even doing strength training exercises outside, you know, when people may be walking by <laughs> and often you're thinking, oh, there, I look like a loon, but it really doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's more important that you're feeling good, that you're meeting your goals and don't worry what other people are thinking about you. 
So I don't know, Trevor, do you feel self-conscious running in new areas or unfamiliar areas? Not usually. If I'm running through big cities and have to stop at a lot of crosswalks and I'm like, here I am, like in my short shorts, um, waiting for the crosswalk. Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of in a bubble and everyone's looking at me, but it's probably in my head, you know? That's right. People are pretty used to seeing runners. We were in London, you know, there are just runners everywhere. And certainly there's plenty of U.S. cities that are like that too. So it just depends on what part of the world you're in. I mean, there have been plenty of times when I've gone out on a run some town and people are looking at me like, wow, I haven't seen anybody do that in years. <laughs> <laughs> we did run in a lot of more rural areas and you're you know, often the only person out there that time of the day running. Um, and sometimes it was funny, we'd stay at these RV campgrounds where, you know, demographically it tends to be an older population. So people are out walking their little dogs in the morning and yeah, like retirees. Yeah. And you see, you know, you're, you're running laps or, but the key is to do it anyway, just forge your own path and be true to your goals and do your best to stay safe in whatever area you're running in. Listen to your intuition. It reminds me on the subject of the way people respond. Um, earlier this year, weren't you out running and somebody, uh, drove by and rolled down the window and said, keep it shaking. Yes. <laughs> that, that was in our, our own area. I was not left with a favorable impression of that individual. I thought, oh, that's a... It wasn't me. That's a jerk move. <laughs> I think there's a way to encourage runners, like give them a friendly nod or wave or smile. But usually when people roll down their windows to yell something at you, it's not going to be something pleasant. But do the run anyway, you know, even if you're going to run into some Neanderthals out there. <laughs> and I think maybe it's a little bit different for female runners because... Um, you know, we tend to feel often a little bit more vulnerable because there is, you know, you hear about situations where, um, you know, female runners can, are t attacked or harassed. And so I think we tend to, you know, maybe be a little bit more self-conscious because, you know, we're not out there to like be attractive and be some kind of sex symbol, even though that's how some people interpret it. It's kind of a whole different um, feeling, mm -hmm. I think, as a woman runner. So, you know, you tend to be more alert and more aware, I think, in new areas, which which is a good thing. Um, but definitely take precautions, but don't let um, just the fear of something new uh, keep you from reaching your running goals. And as a final tip, remember to stop and get a selfie, because as Angie always says, the run doesn't count unless you share it on social media. <laughs> well, I've never actually said that, but... <laughs> And speaking of photos, you can see pictures from our travels along with the show notes of this episode over at MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. That brings us to the end. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you to Drip Drop ORS for sponsoring the episode. They make an electrolyte powder developed by a doctor to treat dehydration. You just mix it with water and it works fast and tastes amazing. You can try it before a run, after a workout, or when you need to recover from drinking too much. Just go to DripDrop.com and use the code MTA to get 20% off any purchase. That's DripDrop.com. Use the code MTA. And, of course, we always love hearing from you guys. We have a contact form on our website. You can send us a message that way or reach out on Facebook or at Marathon Academy as well as on Instagram. And don't forget about the MTA virtual half. You can sign up for this virtual race, and we will send you a training plan plus our ultra-cool technical running trucker hat and the one-of-a-kind medal. It's a great way to challenge yourself and put another race in the calendar as well as support the podcast and be part of an online running community. Learn more about that at marathontrainingacademy.com forward slash half. All right. Well, until next time, keep taking action. Be safe out there. And remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Well on my way, well on my